in Tennessee, there are more payday lenders than there are McDonald's or Walmart locations. Yeah, and so that's like kind of the last you know big um, stat I wanted to share before we really talk about how this is affecting our community. It, you know, it says the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau estimates that in 2015 there were 15,766 payday loan stores across 36 states. Compare that to the 14,350 McDonald's fast food outlets in all of the United States in 2014 for your sense of scale. I, I, I joked at the office the other day, if we had an app, it would be pretty simple to develop, and I, we may still do this to drive home the point, but if, if uh, you pulled up an app and it just pulled your location like a lot of the apps that you have on your phone today, and it, it would just simply tell you whether or not you were closer to a McDonald's, a Walmart, or a payday lender, it's almost always true that you'd be closer to a payday lender. It's incredible. Um, and it's just particularly true in areas of concentrations of poverty, right? These uh, lenders tend to concentrate around bus stops and public transit. They tend to concentrate in um, heavily minority or African-American areas or um, places with high concentrations of Latino or Hispanic immigrants. Um, they recognize who their um, target audience is because these are folks that don't have access to traditional banking options. Joda Tongnapnua is the executive director of the Metro Ideas Project, a public policy think tank based here in Chattanooga that focuses on the issues and challenges facing mid-sized cities. In the past, we've had Joda on to discuss Metro Ideas' work on education finance, and today we've invited him back to share about their latest project, Exploring Predatory Lending. In this episode, we explore the history of the practice, how it went from virtually non-existent 25 years ago to today where brick-and-mortar predatory lending stores outnumber McDonald's. Now, if that sounds shocking, the good news is that we end discussing Metro Ideas policy recommendations that may empower cities to curb predatory lending and bring an end to the practice of usury that takes advantage of so many within our community. This is the Camp House Podcast, and I'm your host, Matt Busby. Joda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be back. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so our guest today is Joda Tongnapnua. And I did pronounce that right. Correct? You did. Okay. Good. Um, who is not a uh, stranger to our podcast? We actually had him on very, you know, back in the early days. I think over a year ago now. Um, yeah, I think that was about right. Yeah, because Joda heads up an organization called Metro Ideas Project, and at the time he had just released, you know, a, a study on per pupil spending in Hamilton County Department of Education. So if you if you're interested in how our sort of county spends money on children, I highly recommend going back and listening to that episode or checking out their website. What's what's the website for Metro? It's just metroideas.org. Metroideas.org, and they've got a whole bunch of um, different projects they've worked on. Um, but I think that, that was that was your guys' first big project you did. It right? was. So we spent about four months deconstructing a $400 million budget. And that was, we did that for a few reasons. <clears throat> I wanted to go out of my way and do something really difficult to demonstrate yeah. that we had some credibility. Um, Cause hey, this organization came out of nowhere for a lot of people. And so uh, if we had, if we had taken on a really difficult project, I think that was um, a really nice hurdle for us to clear and for folks to say, okay, you guys are legit. You know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it. You know, from day one, it established the value of what you guys are doing, not only just to our community, but to other communities of our size. Yeah, no, and I think that over the course of the last, I mean, we're entering our third year now, and over that two-year period where we have focused on everything from education spending to uh, 
violence reduction and how to uh, best intervention or how to best inter- intervene with gangs to um, how do you open up data to be more equitable. Uh, I, I think we've contributed some really cool things to the city and I'm excited about the future of Metro Ideas Project too. Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit more and have you just ba- basically describe that organization for people who didn't hear that first episode. But first, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you had a, you had a big announcement last week that came out. Uh, so what's going on with Joda? Yeah. So uh, on January 25th, I announced that I was running for the Tennessee House of Representatives in District 30. And that is a district that stretches from East Lake and covers Missionary Ridge, East Ridge, Brainerd, East Brainerd, Appison, all the way out to Collegedale. Um, and so I, I'm really excited. Uh, the campaign is really focused on how are we going to fight for working families, and uh, I'm excited about rolling out a lot of those uh, ideas and policies that we're going to be discussing over the next 11 months um, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, and so that you know, this is one of the things I'm really excited about for the podcast this year is I do want to get as many people who are going to be running for both local and state office on the podcast as, as possible before the election to really give people an idea of who's running to represent them, both at a local and a state level. And uh, and so, Jody, we'll have you back. Um, but that's a that's a hat trick. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. You'll be the first one to be on the podcast three times. I'm I, be, I am honored. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, but today, what we really want to talk about is your latest project with Metro Ideas, which is focused on predatory lending. And before we get into that, though, again, just give us a brief introduction of what you guys do at Metro Ideas Project. Yeah, so Metro Ideas Project is a nonprofit urban policy organization. And we sort of sit in that intersection between a think tank, a creative agency, and a sort of consultancy for cities. And our entire objective is to help mid-sized cities work better for their residents. Um, And we do that through a variety of different ways. We do research projects that are comprehensive and take several months. Uh, We've done this working through, you know, how do we better improve the innovation district? We've thought through how do we... um, what are the sorts of place-based strategies that improve equity around um, our city? And we've also done this now around this predatory lending project, which took quite quite a bit of time. But we also do these sort of brief perspectives where we'll propose a policy that, you know, over a couple of weeks of work um, and and really kind of get a sense of what kinds of ideas are out there. Uh, so we did this with the food incubator where we proposed a, a restaurant incubator focused specifically on immigrant and minority populations to help them cut through some of the red tape and capital costs that are involved in starting a restaurant and help kind of accelerate that wealth building process. Uh, And we've done this on uh, ideas around, you know, community land trust. How do we make housing more affordable for uh, folks in our community? So we do a variety of these kinds of short research projects, the more comprehensive ones. And then also we do um, events and public engagement where we host critical conversations about really important topics in our community and ask the public to participate in those. What do you guys, those are Wonk Wednesdays, is that correct? Yep. When's your guys' next one? Do you have it scheduled? Yeah, so we're going to have one in February on the uh, restaurant incubator idea. We're going to be bringing together a bunch of folks from the food industry to talk about what is the future of this idea look like? What is a funding mechanism um, look like? And how can we begin to start to move forward on some of these ideas? Yeah, that, that'll be great to have some something more actionable than a document coming out of that and, and hosting that yeah. sort of conversation. Um, you know, as, as a person who loves podcasts and is very interested in podcasts, I know I've bugged you about this before. Is there any chance you guys turn those into a podcast series with Metro Ideas? I, I would love that. I, I think over the next... I would say um, six months, you're going to start to see us be a lot louder um, and a lot more 
visible as an organization. And there's a couple of reasons as to why. I think for the first two years, we were really head head down, focused on doing good work. And I think the reason why was that credibility question that I said earlier. Um, we really wanted to demonstrate that we could do the hard stuff, uh, whether it be combing through three, four, five years of property tax data uh, down to the address level. That's something like 1.8 million records. Um, or uh, deconstructing a, a school budget. But now that we have been able to demonstrate our capacity to do those things, I think now we're we're a little bit more ready and more willing to leverage that credibility to advocate for change, um, positive change in our city. And so whether it be through podcasts or short instructional videos on uh, explainer videos on how do we... Like the whiteboard kind of videos? Yeah, yeah. or, or even just... Um, you know, more frequent meetings at our offices on Main Street and Holtzclaw, those kinds of discussions and those kinds of outlets for our, our work uh, are going to become increasingly important. And we recognize that the role that Metro Ideas Project has to play isn't just Research Institute. It is also table for really important community conversations. Now, so now that you guys have been around for, you know, a year and a half now, two years? Yeah, we're entering our third year now. And so what you guys are really focused on is finding uh, problems within communities that, that may be, you know, really, really big, whether that's, you know, school budgets or, you know, even stuff like predatory lending like we're going to talk about today. Uh, do you guys have like a process you've come up with with identifying problems within communities? Like how, how have you gone about finding these issues? It's an imperfect process, I should say. Um, a lot of it is community members will... Uh, or, or community leaders will bring ideas to the table and say, hey, we really think you should look at this. And that was the case with the education project. Um, I, uh, For the predatory lending piece, I had uh, sort of known about this issue going back some time, and uh, I'd seen family members or loved ones and, and close friends take payday loans and, and watch how tough it was for them to pay it back. And so I had a personal interest in... Um, understanding that industry a little bit better and understanding how we could maybe curb some of the worst practices of it. Uh, and then also we have an internal process. It's sort of like a cross between the SNL's writer room and a, <laughs> a pitch session for your editor at a newspaper where anybody on staff, whether you're in operations in HR all the way to, you know, folks heading up our research or our research assistants can pitch a policy idea. Yeah. And we do that once a month and That's we fun. get some really really fun ideas out yeah. of it. We have a bounty, so if anybody comes up with an idea that's preempted by the state <laughs> of Tennessee, uh, they get I, I buy them drinks afterwards. And that's happened more than once um, on an issue like paid sick leave is uh, currently illegal in, in the state of Tennessee. Oh, wow. Gosh. Yeah. Well, okay. So today we're going to be talking about predatory lending and this report you guys just put about put out about you know the way local communities can curb predatory lending within their municipality. Um, but when, when we say the word predatory lending, um, first of all, that, that sounds a little bit abstract. And yeah. so what, what I'd love for you to do is actually imagine you're driving down a road and just describe what it is we're talking about through sort of visual means. Yeah. So I think a lot of folks are pretty familiar with these as soon as you start to paint a picture. So imagine you're going down that road and on your, your right-hand side, you pass a check into cash. And on the left-hand side, you pass advantage 24-7. And on the next, you know three, four blocks, you see all of these payday lenders and check cashers and flex lenders and uh, title loan title places. Loans, yeah. uh, all of these places uh, are offering you what seems like a really enticing deal. 
money today for your paycheck, you know, tomorrow, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a pay advance is yeah. what they're offering. What they're not as being explicit about is the fact that the cost for those loans is typically somewhere between 350 and 460 percent interest. Uh, mm. Three, four fifty nine is the limit in Tennessee, which is double what the mob charged in its heyday. Uh, yeah. Whenever you have loans that are costing this much, the fact is is that most people will pay over the life of their uh, uh, time with that lender. They will pay more in fees and interest than they will have paid in the principal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, so you're comparing it to the mob right there, which is not something we typically think about as a problem today. And, and but that brings up the issue that really this this issue of predatory lending is nothing new. Um, if anything, it has certain protections today that it's never existed within history. Uh, but even going back to biblical times, you know, we didn't call it, we, they didn't call it predatory lender, lending, but they called it usury. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd love for you to just actually share a bit about the history of usury. Um, and the way that that has really brought about almost universal sort of moral objection throughout history. Um, and, and, and I think that helps really paint the context of how unique the situation is today of these sort of protected legal uh, forms of predatory lending that we have. Yeah, so th- like you said, throughout history, this kind of usury or, or excessive interest charging um, has been not only frowned upon, it was considered a sin. Uh, and in so many ways, th- this was one of the high crimes that you could be kind of castigated with and, and ostracized from a community. And, and uh, going back even to the—you I, I, could step back 2,000 years or, or further back into the history of the Old Testament and really begin to get a picture that the idea that you would charge excessive interest for— lending um, a, a neighbor or a family member money in their time of need and then trying to profit off of that was uh, morally objectionable. And there's just verse after verse and passage after passage, not only in the Bible, but in the Torah and in the Quran about why these uh, practices are wrong. Fast forward a little bit to the beginning of our country. Um, there were laws established on the books based off of English common law and basic decency that established a, an interest rate cap uh, of about 6 to 10%, depending on what year you're looking at. Um, no one could charge more than 6 to 10% annual, annual interest rates on, on loans. And this stayed true for so long. Every Every single one of the colonies and then later the states that they were based off of and then later the expansion states in the United States all uh, had these interest rates baked into their state's constitutions. These weren't just laws. They were fundamental laws. And some things, like th- th- there were periods of change where the finance industry progressed maybe faster than those laws were able to keep up. So... There was a, a really funny discussion. I can't remember the year, but it was around the, you know, the early 1900s. And uh, some folks on the floor of Congress were debating whether or not to allow these small dollar loans to be made at a reasonable interest rate to provide an alternative to loan sharks. And uh, they were talking about, you know, something like. Uh, a monthly percentage rate of 3%. I, and the 
Congress people were, uh, one, one congressman in particular came out and said that there's no way I'm going to allow that. Even with the best of intentions, I cannot stomach it. Um, fast forward a little bit more, and you've got credit cards that begin to to capture the American consumer's fancy. Um, these uh, new kinds of financial tools opened up the world of credit for the vast majority of American consumers for the first time in their lives. And then that was probably around the 50s or 60s and then pushed forward even further to around 1994 here in Tennessee um, is whenever the first uh, law allowing um, what we call deferred presentment, which is the idea that uh, they look at your pay stub and you give them a check post-dated so they, they take your paycheck and it's dated for some time in, a, in in the future, maybe one or two weeks ahead. And then in exchange, you get uh, that money now. And it's not technically a loan, so that's why they can sidestep yeah. the, uh, the, the limits that are currently established in the state of Tennessee, uh, barring um, any interest rates over 10, 15% on a traditional loan. Yeah, I think it's fascinating too. I think there's a couple of things that can, you know, when we ask the question of how did these things become so ubiquitous in our communities, uh, you know, I, th- I think one of them is wrapped up with this, you know, philosophical discussion of the, you know, the way we're separated from each other in community, you know, because you're, you're talking about back in the biblical times, really, the, the sin was you're taking advantage of a neighbor. Yeah. Right. And, and, and today, you know, we live in communities. I don't live in my hometown. I, you know, I'm sure this is your hometown. Yeah. But, um, but, but our communities have become so um, separated from each other, from our neighbor, um, that, that we don't necessarily see these things as such a great sin anymore because we don't know our neighbor very well. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, your, is what you're just talking about. We've fallen in love with credit as a way that our economy functions. And that's only true of the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Yeah, I mean, b- before the advent of credit cards and consumer loans, uh, debt... And, and credit was something that did not have a, as much of a day-to-day role uh, with most people as it does today. I mean, you may have one or two big loans, like a mortgage or something like that, but the vast majority of Americans <clears throat> and people throughout history owned things, and, um, and they owned very little. Let's be very clear. The vast majority of people didn't have that much. Um, and then this explosion of consumer credit changed changed the way our entire economy worked. And what I think the predatory lending industry realized was there was a demand for subprime or, uh, in another way, uh, people with with lack of access to traditional credit options. Um, there was a huge market to be able to provide loans to those people uh, at extremely high costs. And what we are arguing and what I... What I uh, would posit is a, a really, really awful predatory uh, cost associated with these loans. Yeah, so these, you know, these really started, you know, popping up in the 1990s, and, and you have these stats within the report. So Metro Ideas actually produced an entire report on this. It's about 20 pages long uh, that you can find on their website. But uh, you know, some of the the really striking, eye-opening, shocking statistics in this are, you know, number one. 12 million Americans take you know, use these financial services, and it's a market, it's an industry that brings in $9 billion a year, which is just 
it's shocking. Yeah, it's a it's a massive massive industry. I don't think people realize how much money we are talking about, and the, and it explains the fervor and the aggressiveness of why their trade associations and their lobbyists are are so aggressive in in fighting laws that are going to curb any of those practices from the federal government all the way down. Because it's so lucrative. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a truly. Uh, very, it's a very lucrative industry. Yeah, and so some of the other ones that are in here, you know, the number of payday brick-and-mortar locations grew from virtually zero in 1990 to over 10,000 locations across the U.S. by 1999, with, within nine years, within Yeah, it was really an explosion, and, and there's no way to explain that other than there was a legal environment that suddenly made it possible. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't be in this industry, they, 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 they'll, there wouldn't be as many of these businesses. And in Tennessee, there are more payday lenders than there are McDonald's or Walmart locations. Yeah, and so that's like kind of the last you know, big um, stat I wanted to share before we really talk about how this is affecting our community. It, you know, it says the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau estimates that in 2015, there were 15,766 payday loan stores across 36 states. Compare that to the 14,350 McDonald's fast food outlets in all of the United States in 2014, for your sense of scale. I, I, I joked in the office the other day, if we had an app, it would be pretty simple to develop, and I, we may still do this to drive home the point, but if, if uh, you pulled up an app and it just pulled your location like a lot of the apps that you have on your phone today, and it, it would just simply tell you whether or not you were closer to a McDonald's, a Walmart, or a payday lender, it's almost always true that you'd be closer to a payday lender. That's incredible. Um, and it's just particularly true in areas of concentrations of poverty, right? These uh, lenders tend to concentrate around bus stops and public transit. They tend to concentrate in um, heavily minority or African-American areas or um, places with high concentrations of Latino or Hispanic immigrants. Um, they recognize who their um, target audience is because these are folks that don't have access to traditional banking options. That's great, and I think that really you know ties us in and, and brings us to a discussion of how sort of the, these predatory lending institutions are, are affecting our local communities and in our, our state. Uh, so I know you know, tell me about how this is a particular problem within the state of Tennessee. Yeah, so in the state of Tennessee, we have over twelve hundred locations, which is the highest concentration of payday lenders anywhere in the country, and this is largely due to the fact that we have some of the most lax uh, and and open. Uh, access to that industry uh, and laws on the books that protect their their uh, ability to operate a predatory uh, business than any other state in the union. And, and, I, and I do want to point out right there that only 36 states allow this. So this is not like... This is not ubiquitous th throughout the entire country. This is no. something particular to, you know, about half the United States. Georgia doesn't have to deal with this problem. I mean, just over the border, we realize that uh, if you're driving down, um, say, Rossville Boulevard, there's a moment when you hit the state border and then suddenly um, these lending locations are not there anymore. And the yeah. reason why is because the state of Georgia has imposed a non like a, 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 a interest rate cap at, at which, uh, like, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it is low enough to where the industry is like, well, we're not going to make any money off of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why would you locate across the border when you could be right there in Tennessee That's and right. make far more money? Yep. And so, I mean, and one of the other things I want to point out too, is that th this is not just a high cost industry for 
people without options for emergency expenses. The vast majority of people who use payday loans or flux loans use them not for emergency expenses, which is what the industry will tell you. Uh, That's the marketing. Yeah. They use them for bills like utilities. And a lot of times there is a habit and a, um, a willingness on the part of the lender to encourage habit building uh, the number of loan sequences that an average consumer will take out is eight in a row. Wow. Um, and in Tennessee, technically, technically, you're only legally allowed to have three open at once. Uh, but the industry actually pushed back so heavily on uh, even a way to track whether or not that was being enforced, a database to determine whether or not a consumer had more than three out. Um, so... The, the, we aren't even able to enforce the existing laws on the books. Yeah. Uh, and and this is an industry that would not make money if they were only issuing a consumer one or two loans. They only make money if a consumer takes out several loans, yeah. which is their, their entire assumption. The business model is designed to keep people trapped in poverty. That's how they make money. All right, so you know the state of Tennessee is one of the highest. We have one of the highest rates of these brick and mortar predatory lenders. W- what is that like here in our own community? Uh, maybe even on a county, Hamilton County level. Yeah, so in Hamilton County, we have about seventy-one or seventy-two predatory lenders in the entire county, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you start to think about it as um, a number, when you break it down, how many predatory lenders do we have per hundred thousand residents? We have about you know, twenty. Wow. per, per yeah. 100,000 residents, which is puts us in the top 10 of the highest concentrations of lenders in the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And that actually presents a really big challenge. I mean, that means that if Tennessee is the highest concentration of predatory lenders anywhere in the country, and we're in the top 10 right. uh, in the state of Tennessee, we are, we've got some real challenges ahead of us in yeah. dealing with this issue. Yeah. And, and have you guys created like a heat map for the, for for Hamilton County on where these locations are? So, yeah, we have. Um, and the the map would show that they're concentrated around a couple of different uh, uh, areas in town. So you would see it in the Brainerd and Eastridge areas, um, and then you would also see it in that Soddy Daisy, mm-hmm. um, parts of the unincorporated areas. And what we're seeing is they, they concentrate in, in working-class neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the consistent themes, not of the podcast, but really in, in Chattanooga, one of the things we want to do is find ways to sort of, you know, begin to raise the, the ship for everybody. You know, like how, how do we take, you know, the advantages of our economy and allow more and more people, make it more and more inclusive uh, to where people can get out of poverty through the advantages that Chattanooga has? Now, obviously, this is like one of those side issues that's going to affect that overall project. Um, so I think with, with that in mind, it, it would seem incredibly important that our, our city and our county would actually take this on as an issue that's going to affect uh, poverty within our county overall. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second and rant a little bit. The, I think the, the fact is, is that uh, there are strategies to curb these kinds of practices. Um, they are made incredibly difficult in the state of Tennessee because our state legislature has refused to act and in fact has enabled the folks who run these industries to run absolutely rampant. Uh, in the state of Tennessee, we have what's called field preemption where um, 
the vast majority of laws that could regulate these industries have already been determined by the state of Tennessee. They've established interest rates. They've established the number of rollover rates. So they, the state has pulled that power away from the cities. Is what exactly. Yeah. So in, in, in Tennessee, they have regulated, and I'm putting that in air quotes, they've, they've provided the, the stage of regulation so that cities can't step in and say, well, we would like to establish our own rates. Um, and, and that makes sense in some ways because it's the state of Tennessee's responsibility to regulate financial institutions, as it is within their jurisdiction. But they have allowed such liberal, and I use that with a, a, a lowercase l, they have like allowed such lax laws to be in place that um, we have the highest concentration of petty lenders anywhere in the country in Tennessee. So cities have very few recourses. And in the past, what they've tried to do is use zoning laws, even in Chattanooga and, and Davidson County and Nashville, we have tried to use those kinds of laws to regulate the industry and say, well, you can't cluster um, too many of them in one location or you can't be too near schools. Um, we, we will only allow more than X number of them in, in per neighborhood, what have you. The problem was is that the, all the ones that were there before grandfathered in. So mm-hmm. to those uh, brick and mortar shops, that's just fine because it locks yeah. out their competition. They'll yeah. hem and haw uh, to uh, on the principle of it, but I think that they, they would say, well, there's worse things than our competition not being able to muscle in on our territory. Um, now, I think... One of the things that we set out to do in this report was not to only point out a dire problem, but also to present some novel and interesting solutions. So well, before we jump into yeah. the solutions, really, I, I do want to point out, because I think it's important. We don't have to name any names, but I do think it's incredibly important that people in, in our community understand that the reason Tennessee is so high on this scale is because one of the I mean, one of the wealthiest individuals who has made money through this industry lives right here in Tennessee. Yeah. And, and, and so has... So when we talk about lobbying efforts, um, there, there's very few states who have experienced the amount of lobbying that Tennessee has um, in terms of uh, p- private people uh, putting money in pockets of politicians to make sure that these regulations stay low and lax. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you can cut this if you want, but I think that, frankly, we, we should be earnest in our discussion about the fact that Alan Jones lives in Cleveland and... Uh, he runs an operation called Check and a Cash that is designed to keep people in poverty. That is just simply the truth when it comes to uh, the kinds of businesses that these payday lenders run. I mean, it does the the math just doesn't pencil out if if folks are not disadvantaged by taking these loans. Um, and and we have some extremely powerful interests. Uh, who have the ear of our state legislators, uh, ensuring that business continues to remain profitable. All right. So now that we've kind of talked about some of these bigger issues, you know, what you guys came up with, um, you know, kind of a three pronged approach that cities, um, you know, we've already talked about how there's very little they can do because of what the state legislator has done. But there are some aspects of this that cities can can sort of enact that will help curb predatory lending. Maybe not end it, but it can soften the impact on our communities. So let's let's talk about those. Talk us through that three pronged approach. Yeah. So whenever we set out to write this report, like I said, we we wanted to provide a series of solutions and not just point out a problem. And I think one of the challenges in doing that was we had this environment of preemption, which is true for not only payday lending, but for a lot of issues. Uh, The state of Tennessee often exerts its authority and says to cities, well, 
you can't do this. We're going to come in and, and tell you how we think your city should be run. There are a couple of ways around that. And we came up with some novel, creative, and uh, unorthodox ideas for how cities can actually begin to curb some of these practices. So rather than be able to limit the APR or the percent, like the, the, the interest rates that these uh, industries can charge, um, which would be the ultimate solution, right? Like right. this would be the thing that we would really want to be able to, to do. Yeah. To, to, and that's what Georgia has done. To, so uh, low amounts of credit for low regular interest rates, not low interest rates, right. regular interest rates. Right. And um, one of the things that, yeah, that is among the things that we cannot do as a city. Uh, but what we can do is leverage the tools that we have already know and are in our toolbox to make, one, a very clear statement, and number two, to inform consumers about the dangers of, of using these loans right. um, and, and to do business with these kinds of organizations. So the first, I'll, I'll walk through each of the prongs, but in short, they, the, the three-prong approach to this issue for cities and a playbook that we think is solid is warn consumers, permit the lenders, and lend to folks that need it. And so I'll walk through each of those. So, so creating an alter alternative institution. Yeah, is exactly. That right. Yeah. Uh, so the Warren piece is actually the most unorthodox. Um, this is the result of some work and ideas by Christopher Peterson at the University of Utah. He's a law professor there. He used to be an um, advisor, uh, an attorney with the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau under the Obama administration. He's a really smart guy. And he came up with this really clever idea that leverages the ability of cities to regulate signage to actually mandate that if you are uh, charging an interest rate above a usurious limit, and there's sort of an, a red line that we've identified, 45% uh, is what we've sort of started the conversation as. We're open to you know, providing um, some flexibility there or providing exemptions around specific kinds of lenders, but uh, that 45% line if you're charging 45% interest, that is usually the evidentiary requirement um, to demonstrate uh, usury, which is still illegal in, this, in, in the United States, by the way. Like you, <laughs> it's still illegal, but there's plenty of exceptions to it. But uh, it, it is one of the, the evidentiary pieces of, of uh, extortion. Um, and so it's not the only requirement, but it is one of the things that you need to prove. Um, and that, that limit is where we say, okay, if you're charging interest rates above that, you have got to warn consumers in a very clear right. and blunt way about what it is that you do as a business. Not fine print on the contract. No. So what we proposed is that uh, any of these businesses would be required on any of their outside signage to dedicate about a third of its space to a plain spoken language warning that says, warning predatory lender. Uh, on white letters, uh, an aerial font um, on a black background. It's just an extremely clear warning akin to a cigarette label that says, hey, this causes cancer. And the reason why is, and there's a lot of really good jurisprudence, which is just a fancy way of saying that there is a lot of good legal precedent for compelled corporate speech when it's in the interest of the welfare of a community. Yeah, yeah. And so this, this would apply to like billboards and stuff too, right? Uh, it would, and you'd be... Uh, hard-pressed to kind of figure out an industry that's going to elicit less sympathy. Um, and so I think there is political will to do this in our city. And uh, on top of that, there are some other additional requirements. One, there would have to be a door, uh, a door decal that kind of warns 
consumers again that this is a debt trap, and then um, they would have to uh, note that they have complied with this ordinance and file uh, paperwork with the city of Chattanooga to continue to operate. Well, I think that gets us into the second prong approach, which is a permitting process, yep. uh, which would be new as well. So talk about that piece. Yeah, so to operate a deferred presentment or a payday lender in the state of Tennessee, you have to get a license. But um, what we are proposing is... An and that's a state license. It is a state license, yes. So um, what we are proposing is that you would have to get an additional permit um, at the city level um, to operate a an organization like this, um, a business like this. And you would have to uh, not only ensure that you, like, uh, that you are complying with the ordinance that requires you to dedicate a certain amount of your signage to warning consumers, but you would also need to pay a fee to get this permit, um, which would uh, fund in part the enforcement mechanisms for folks that yeah. were not complying. So you would be able to dedicate staff to this issue. Uh, and there's also some other interesting things. So currently, pawn shops, like twice a month, I think, uh, report all of their sales mm. to the Chattanooga Police Department. So it's not an uncommon idea that maybe a payday lender would report without the details of who they lended to, right. the raw number of loans they've made and at yeah. what percentage rates. So that way you could have just more information about what can communities were really being saturated with these kinds of loans so that maybe you could go and provide some alternative. Yeah. 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 And I, and I do want to point out a lot of the statistics we've talked about and in the reporting that uh, Metro Ideas Project did, those are all from a, a study that Pew Charitable Trust funded, right? Or, or yeah. So a series of studies, actually, that they've been working on over the years, um, particularly as the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau um, which is a new agency that the Obama administration created um, right around the turn of the economy uh, during the Great Recession. Um, this was designed to protect consumers in the wake of that um, that crisis uh, and to ensure that you know some of those practices that led to that crisis wouldn't happen again. But but they turned a specific focus toward predatory lenders. And so Pew Research um, and Pew Charitable Trusts have done a lot of really amazing work whose shoulders we've stood on um, to create this report. All right. So, you know, signage, regulating signage, requiring an, a, a, an additional municipal permit. And then the third one is actually creating alternative institutions. That's right. So you can't just yank out the rug from right. underneath people. Like a lot of these folks who are taking predatory loans are doing so because they don't have many other options. Yeah. Um, and that is actually really frustrating. And as a policymaker, it's really sad as a neighbor and as a citizen. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's a good enough excuse as uh, somebody who's looking at the landscape of, of lending options uh, that we should yeah. allow predatory lenders to proliferate because there are no other options. To me, it is a call to action that we should create alternative lending options. And actually, well, well, well one, of the, one of the things I found so fascinating in your report is that the people, the majority of the people who are taking out these loans are, are not people in poverty. They're, they're, these are, the average income of these people is $30,000. Yeah. So they sit right on that bubble mm -hmm. between the lower and the middle class which is, is, is an incredibly hard place to sit when it comes to, you know, getting federal assistance with health care. Um, and, and, and it's just, it's a, it's a really impossible place for people to be uh, is right on that bubble. And, the, and these are the people that are being taken advantage of through these payday lenders. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about a, a, a group of individuals having trouble making ends meet. These are people who are trying. Yeah, they're really working, though. Yeah. And a lot of the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest segments and demographically for the payday lending industry are single working mothers. 
and I, I just I find it unconscionable that we have allowed an industry to flourish whose entire business model is designed to make life of yeah. single working moms harder. Right. Um, because they don't have any other options. So one of the pieces of our recommendation is a, is a more focused on consumers. Um, so instead of just interdicting at the lender level and saying, well, hey, you're a bad actor. We're going to slap you on the wrist for it. And we're going to warn consumers that you're, you, you have bad practices. But we're also going to organize... Um, an alternative. And this is based off of a model that we saw in Oakland um, called the community check cashers. So instead of trying to open up a um, an entirely new model for lending to folks at the two, $300 level, which is often what these loans are. I mean, we're talking yeah. small amounts of money in the grand scheme of, you know, capitalization of a bank. What this group of folks did is they started an organization that just used the exact legal structure that payday lenders use, but instead of charging the maximum APR they are allowed to charge, they only charge the interest rate necessary to cover the risk on the loan. And then they provide credit and debt counseling. They actually do real underwriting. So that instead of saying, well, uh, you're, you're coming in here to apply for a $400 loan, how about $600, which is what a lot of yeah. those payday lenders will do. They will say, do you really need $400 or do you need the 225 to cover your electric bill this month? Yeah. And they will walk the consumer through a plan to pay it back. And the default rate of this organization is less than 1%, which <laughs> is, incredible. you contrast that with the payday loan default rate of around 20. Or with any form of credit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, a, a lending institution that is wildly successful. And we need to be looking at models like that to ensure that people have access to alternative credit models. And we think that this could be financed pretty easily through a combination of foundation and uh, private capital funding. This is not free money either. Let's be very clear. People can you know, generate enough revenue off of this to be self-sustaining. And yeah. in a lot of ways, when foundations are thinking about impact investing strategies or something similar to that, we've got an opportunity to make yeah our 3 4% returns and actually really help right. people at the end of the day yeah. as well. So I see this as a, a really clear way to provide an alternative lending model. And you know what? What's really cool about this if you pair this with the worn piece and the permitting piece, what you're doing is stacking the deck against people who right. who make their money by adopting business practices that are frankly gross. So you have a warning, a black mark on the folks who who have chosen to, to adopt bad business practices. You have an additional financial burden on them by providing a permitting requirement. That the other, you know, the 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 this alternative lending model may have to apply for that permit as well, but the the fact is, is that consumers can be price sensitive if they know they have options. And yeah. so if they know that there is a, a lender out there that's going to work with them on um, the their repayment, if they know that there's a lender who's going to offer them a better deal on pricing, if there's a lender that's not going to harass them and tell them they're going to go to jail if they don't pay back their loan, which, by the way, is illegal, but payday lenders have been known to say those kinds of mm. things on the phone yeah. to consumers when they're doing debt collection. Uh they will go to that. They will go to that lender, and market forces will drive out these payday lenders. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the sort of idea in a nutshell. Is that you create a a real pressure 
on payday lenders to either offer better terms or go out of business. And that is not a new idea. We did this exact thing whenever loan sharks were prevalent in the early 1900s and late 1800s. There was something called the Remedial Small Loan Fund put on by the Russell Sage Foundation, which Mm produces some of the most prominent academic journals in our nation today. Um, but they have a legacy that goes back 100 years in uh, something called small loan laws, where they provided at no uh, benefit or profit to themselves small loans to consumers um, at the you know rate of about 30% interest at a couple hundred bucks you know at a time in a time period where the only other option was quite literally uh, mafia-connected uh, lenders. Yeah. And the idea was to force those lenders out of business by saying, uh, we're going to compete with you on price. And the only reason those small loan uh, lenders went out of business is because credit cards became really popular. Yeah. Um, we are seeing that there is a need for something in between a credit card and a, a payday lender. Right. So just to, to just to recap, I mean, th- these institutions exist for a reason. Like there is a market need out there for something like this. Um, but, you know, the, the three pronged approach sort of that Joda and Metro Ideas is proposing is, uh, you know, adjusting the signage, requiring a permit and then creating alternative institutions to meet that market need. Uh, now, as you, you you've had this report out for about a month, two months. Yeah, we released it over the new year. OK. And so what has the reaction been to this? I think it's been relatively positive. I mean, what we've seen is that consumers recognize that these folks are not good actors. City leaders know that this is a problem, and to their credit, the Burke administration has been working on um, solutions to this issue through the mayor's uh, council for women. Um, Councilwoman Carol Burrs, I know, is really passionate about this issue, and so who, who represents that brain or district? That's right. That yeah, is so it, this is a, this. a clear challenge in her district, and I think she's got the will and and drive to to go do something about it. Um, and so over the next coming months, I think we've got a starting point for a conversation. Now, um, I don't think that we have uh, the final um, or or definitive policy. Uh, intervention designed, but yeah. I do think that now we have some ideas other than throwing our hands up and saying, well, the state says we can't do anything about it. Uh, yes, I think that if the state were, uh, and our state legislators uh, were, were, were bold and were willing to um, do the right thing, they would turn down uh, uh, lobbying money from the trade associations from payday lenders and go and impose a, a, a firm limit, uh, a fair limit on APRs. But Absent that, I think cities uh, now have a, a, a starting point for regulating an industry that is traditionally just totally screwed over consumers. Well, Joda, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for the work you guys are no, doing yeah, on thank this. You for and, me um, on. you know, I, I look forward to, you know, every sort of project you guys take on because it's always, it, like I said earlier, I, you know, I'm curious about your problems, your, your process for finding these issues. Yeah. Um, because it's always something that's important. And it's always something that maybe I don't think about, right? Like even with payday lenders, they're ubiquitous. When I think about it, I see them everywhere. But, yeah. uh, but until you think of it, uh, the sort of impact this is having on our community on a personal level, the fact that this is you know, overwhelmingly affecting single moms, the fact that they congregate around bus stops, you know, when, when you put it in those pictures, you just realize how much, how much of a, a problem this industry is for our community. So thank you for, for doing yeah, this. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm always uh, stoked to come on the show. So I'm looking forward to actually bringing that hat trick home yeah 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 we'll have you back soon for uh, talking about your run for office all right joda thanks a lot for being here yep
Well, thank you so much to Joda Tongnap Nua for coming on to the podcast to share about Metro Ideas' latest research into the practice of predatory lending, something that takes advantage of so many people within our community. If you want to read more about this subject, then check out the white paper that Metro Ideas Project put together, and you can find a link to that document in our show notes, or you can head over to their website at metroideas.org. Thank you to our studio sponsor, the Chattanooga Public Library and Dynamo Studios, and a shout out to my producers on this episode, Meredith Levine and Charles Allison. And just in case you all have not heard, the studio here at the library now has open hours that can be scheduled for your next project. So whether you are looking to record a song or maybe interested in starting your own podcast, you can check out their open studio blocks and reserve a time for your next project. So check that out at chatlibrary.org. Well, thank you all for listening into our conversation on this important topic. Please take a moment to share this episode with a friend through email or social media, and you can do that through our website at thecamphouse.com slash podcast. Again, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time as we seek to connect, inspire, and inform you about the people and ideas shaping Chattanooga. Have a great day.